This is exactly right. It's 1943 in the Kingdom of Bulgaria. As the Second World War rages, King Boris dies suddenly and every nation is a suspect. The Butterfly King premieres March the 21st on Exactly Right. It's a cruel tale of a doomed royal dynasty. Somewhere, the truth is out there. Listen to The Butterfly King on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. What was strange is, first of all, there was no forced entry. Like if it were a street robbery or something, you'd see the door broken down. They didn't take anything except some cash that she had in a drawer. And so she called a locksmith to get her locks changed. And the locksmith said, when he looked at how the whole thing had happened, he said, this was definitely a professional job. I'm Kate Winkler-Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked, and the co-host of the podcast, Buried Bones on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. One of the most dangerous jobs you can have in some parts of the world is being a journalist. Author Catherine Corcoran penned the book In the Mouth of the Wolf about a groundbreaking reporter who risked her life to expose corruption in Mexico, and then she was murdered. This story is important to you, and it's a personal story to you. You and I spoke on the same panel at the Texas Book Festival, and it was really great hearing the story from your point of view. I usually ask people at the very end, how does the story impact you? But how the story impacted you is actually why you began reporting the story to begin with. So just kind of tell us a little bit about the process of what happened where you arrived at the book, which is In the Mouth of the Wolf. I was working as the Associated Press Bureau Chief for Mexico and Central America. And in Mexico, there began to be a spike in journalist killings, kind of all of a sudden, out of nowhere. It impacted me several ways. First of all, we were covering these killings as a story. And second of all, because of the killings, even though the targets of these killings tended to be very local journalists with smaller media outlets, we couldn't assume as international journalists that it wouldn't hit us. So we had to change dramatically how we covered Mexico and our security protocols and just things we didn't have to do before because it was a fairly quiet country beforehand. So we had to send our journalists out in teams. No one could go alone. We had to evaluate the terrain and the area before we sent anybody. We had, had GPS tracking. All that was new. And so it was really much a story I was living on several levels, but also what concerned me so much is that nothing was being done. It just kept getting worse. And in fact, this year has been a record for the number of journalists killed in in Mexico. And there was so little transparency around these cases. We didn't know why they were happening. The government was telling us 
that if a journalist was murdered, it was because they were corrupt. It was because they were narco journalists working for the cartels. Hmm. Certainly that phenomenon did exist and still does, but the numbers were so high. It was like, that doesn't make sense. It couldn't be all of them. Let's talk about the categories of journalists then and now in Mexico. From your book, my understanding is there were the journalists who were the honest, wanting to expose corruption and the cartels and the government. There is the mouthpiece, the journalists who are the mouthpiece for the government. And then there seemed to be people in the middle who were just plain scared. Is that right? Yes, there were several levels of journalists or types of journalists. The press in Mexico traditionally had been controlled by the government because the country was ruled by a one-party authoritarian system. That system broke up in the year 2000 when they had their first democratically elected president. And the press followed suit. The press became more open, more critical, more independent. But because the history had been of control, a lot of media continued in that and they received huge amounts of money from the government to maintain that line. Hmm. So there was that level. When the narcos came in and the powers that they are now and that they started to be at the time, they started to control the press much in the manner that the old party system had done it. And so they started paying journalists and telling journalists what to write, not to write. And some journalists, because they were used to that system, they just started working for new bosses, Hmm. not realizing that the consequence was going to be much more deadly if they fell out of line. And I mean, under the authoritarian party, there were hardly any journalists killed for decades. Most of them were under control. So there were the government journalists, the narco journalists, the journalists who just decided we're going to stay out of this. We're not going to publish anything controversial just for safety. And then there were the journalists, what I would call the new wave, the new generation, who really believed in the press as a important part of developing this new democracy, that the press was important for informing the public, letting the public know what's going on, helping the public make decisions. And they were in this new vein and they were the ones who became harassed outside of the narco journalists who maybe got crossways with their bosses. They became harassed and followed. In the case of Regina Martinez, who is the protagonist of the book, When she was murdered in 2012, it was the first time we could say clearly, this is not a narco journalist. This is a very good, tenacious journalist who produced very good journalism. She was known nationally for her work. And that was the first time, even though the government wouldn't say it was related to her work, we could say, this is a hit on a journalist. And so I think that's why that case of all these other cases stuck with me, but also because I had spoken to her on the phone. I had tried to hire her and she was too busy. She couldn't take the story. But the fact that I even had that brief interaction with her, when I found out she had been murdered, I remember saying her because it didn't fit with the story that we were getting. How do journalists in Mexico who are of the class of Rahina, who don't want to be bought, they're brave enough to report on some controversial things, how do they stay safe on a day-to-day basis if they literally have no government, no real powerful entity protecting them? At first, they didn't. They were just kind of out there on their own, you know, just going after the story and not really thinking about the consequences. But as these killings start to increase they started more informal networks of support, which is one thing that Regina did. 
is she developed her own circle around her of journalists she could trust. For that reason, for her own security, she had a very small circle of friends and led a very hermetic life because she knew that there were many ways that her critics could get at her, like going after her family for one thing. And so she actually made up a story about her own history and family and about where they were and where they were from so nobody could go looking for them. Wow. Let's start with Rahina. Tell me about who she was as a person and sort of her path towards where she ended up in 2012. According to her friends, she had a very strong personality. She was very opinionated and could be kind of dismissive at times. But also as a reporter, they said she was always very polite. She was very formal and very polite, but in her casual circle, she was very critical and to the point where they found it entertaining because she was this tiny woman of indigenous roots, not the profile of a person who was normally in the press in those days and super opinionated with this big personality. They called her Brava, which is like harsh, (laughs) but they kind of even found it endearing in a way. Those who admired her in her close circle, they found it very endearing the way she was always out front and always saying exactly what she thought. Because that's not how the press worked at the time. But also that's in polite Mexican society, also not what's done. Hmm. It's a very indirect kind of communication, but she was very direct, very opinionated, and very dedicated to telling the truth. And that made her stand out from the very beginning of her career. And because of that, she suffered a lot of harassment over the years of her career and was very disliked by the powers that be for all the trouble that her stories would cause. Where was she located in Mexico? She was in the city of Jalapa, which is the capital of the state of Veracruz, which is on the Gulf Coast of Mexico. It's kind of a long, thin state along the Gulf of Mexico. And it was considered safer than Mexico City in this time in 2012? Well, up to, I would say, 2010. That's when the journalist killing started in huge numbers in that state, in Veracruz. Maybe a few years before that. Starting in 2007, everything started to become more dangerous. Before that, it was a fairly quiet state. It's always been a state controlled by mafias with a lot of corruption. And there's a huge port in Veracruz, also named Veracruz, where it's the largest incoming port in Mexico. So a lot of contraband comes through there. It's a very remote state as well. And so they had airplanes full of cocaine, but it was all kept under the radar. It was all very quiet until about 2007. But even before 2007, she did suffer harassment for her stories, even before the situation became so dangerous. Give me a few examples of some of the stories that we're talking about. Her passion was social justice issues. And when she started her career in the 1980s, the communities that were marginalized or had no power, no voice, were never covered in the press because the press was still very official. And so she would go out and ask questions and travel to remote parts of the state to find out what was really going on because these communities were often exploited or they were Mm -hmm. kicked off their land, indigenous communities, landless farmers. 
And so she would actually go to these areas and talk to people and find out what was really going on instead of following the official story. So she would publish these stories that were pretty amazing for her time because no one wrote these things. No one bothered to go out and find out what's going on and no one wrote these things. And almost inevitably, the culprit was the government. Hmm. The government was somehow trying to control or abuse various communities that they felt were not with the program. And so like laborers, union workers, indigenous communities. So she wrote all those issues that nobody else was writing. And her stories for the time were pretty astonishing. She did a three-part series on the abuse of laborers in the beer plants. And beer, of course, Mexican beer is very famous. There's a huge plant in Veracruz. And she wrote a three-part series about how these workers were being entirely abused under their union contract, et cetera. She wrote about remote communities not getting vaccines. There was a measles outbreak in a very poor community with no vaccines from the state. She wrote about indigenous women being forced sterilized. She wrote all kinds of things, but eventually it led her to the government because the government had the control and also had the resources. So she started investigating how the government spent its money or didn't spend its money. Veracruz, because of the Gulf, is a state where there are a lot of natural disasters, hurricanes, storms, flooding. She would find cases where victims would be homeless out on the street and the relief supplies would be sitting in a government warehouse. Wow. As I say in the book, I was astonished when I went back to look at her stories. I mean, they were endless. But probably her biggest story was she wrote about the rape of an elderly indigenous woman by some soldiers in a very remote community. And the woman died from her injuries. And she started reporting, and it was a story about this woman had been attacked by soldiers who were camped out nearby doing some operation. And it started out with the government saying, you know, we'll get justice. This is an outrage. And then the president of Mexico came in and got involved because the army is a very important institution and the credibility of the army in Mexico is paramount. And so when the president came in, his concern was saving the reputation of the army. And the story completely changed to where the woman died of natural causes, just kind of an outrageous, obvious cover-up of what had happened. And she wrote about that to the very end and every piece that didn't make sense and every part of the cover-up. And that's when she really earned her national reputation. You talked about her being harassed. What were some of the examples that you learned of how she was harassed before she was killed? The government cut her off from official information. She didn't receive press releases. She was barred from press conferences. She always felt that she was being followed or watched. Hmm. It was almost a given at that time that your phone would be intervened somehow. And early on before the situation became really dangerous, after every event or press conference she covered, she would ask someone to accompany her back to her house. It's a very walkable city where she was. And Or sometimes she'd take a taxi, but she would always ask someone to accompany her because she didn't want to leave an event alone. She had her home broken into and her computer stolen. Right before she was murdered, she had a very strange kind of break-in where everyone took it as a sign that was meant to be a warning. How strange. What was strange is, first of all, there was no forced entry. Like if it were a street robbery or something, you'd see the door broken down. They didn't take anything except some cash that she had in a drawer. Hmm. 
And then they went into her bathroom and steamed up the bathroom and she had these decorative soaps and they crushed all the soaps because they'd gotten wet. And so it was uh, just very odd because coincidentally, she had been away on vacation, but was called back early to do a story. And so she arrived at her home shortly after this happened because it looked as if someone had taken a shower in her bathroom, but all of her soaps were destroyed. People took that as a sign of, we can get into your most inner parts of your house and most private areas of your house. And so she called a locksmith to get her locks changed. And the locksmith said, when he looked at how the whole thing had happened, he said, this was definitely a professional job. When we're talking about suspects, let's just start with this break-in and what we think is a warning. Is this certainly government or is this cartel mafia or are these all conflated? They're pretty much conflated. Mm. They were at this time. She didn't cover cartels. Okay. It was very clear that you couldn't say they were the culprit like they did with so many of these other journalists. Hmm. And also it wasn't a killing that was the style of the cartel. The cartel would wait for you to come out of your house and just shoot you up. Sometimes they'd go into the house and shoot you up. And put you on display sometimes as a warning. Exactly. They were very public kinds of killings. Mm -hmm. And they engendered a lot of fear among journalists and everybody. This one was someone entered her house in the middle of the night and beat her severely as if maybe torturing her and then strangled her. And she wasn't found for about 12 14 hours. And it was just such an unusual style of murder. And the government used that to say that it had to have been someone she knew and someone she let into the house, even though everyone knew that she didn't let anyone, hardly anyone into her house. What preceded this? Was there a story that she was working on? What do we think was the trigger here with whoever killed her? Initially, there were so many possible triggers because of all she had written over the years, but she hadn't written anything particularly controversial leading up to her death, which is why it was such a mystery. Hmm. But there was one story. She worked for a national investigative magazine called Processo. And three weeks before she was killed, there was a small article on the inside of Processo magazine about two allegedly corrupt politicians in Veracruz, in Jalapa, where she was working, and how one had been, according to protected witnesses, was tied to a drug cartel, Mm -hmm. and the other one who was tied to illegal enrichment, like he had all this wealth that didn't make sense with his public servant salary. Hmm. And when that article was published, All of the magazines in Jalapa were stolen before they reached the newsstands. And that was an old school tactic by the ruling party, the authoritarian party. If they didn't like something that was going to be published, they would steal copies so people couldn't read it. And of course, in the old days, pre-internet, that would be very effective. Well, they still used that from time to time, more as a message, because you could obviously read the article online. So she knew they were upset about that article, but she did not write it. It was a national correspondent who had come in from Mexico City who wrote it. And he and others immediately thought that was the article that got her killed. For me, investigating, I dismissed it at first because it was a very small article. It wasn't on the cover. Usually they would steal the magazines if there was like a big splash on the cover about some evil doings. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't on the cover. And also there had been articles written over the years about these two politicians. They had been accused of all kinds of things in the press. 
And so I thought, well, why would this small little article particularly bother them? One of them was the head of state security in Veracruz, and he was accused of using the state security to protect drug lords. So there were all kinds of worse accusations. So that's why I didn't understand why that article would have caused her death. Tell me what happens that day. What do we know preceded that day that it happens? She had a pretty routine day. She worked for the news service for Proceso also. So when you work for a news service, you just churn out kind of spot news articles. And she wrote three articles that day. One was about some police who had been arrested because they were discovered to be corrupt. Another one was about a political official who had been found dead in his house. But they were like police blotter kinds of stories. She wasn't investigating anything. Mm -hmm. And they would be the kind of stories that other media would be covering as well. So she wrote three stories. She went to buy some material to have some clothes made. Kind of a very routine day. She went shopping and then she went home and closed her door because on the weekends, it was a Friday, she really disappeared on the weekend. She stayed inside or, you know, did all her chores, did her writing, did a lot of things, but was not social at all on the weekends. When she went inside and closed her door on Friday night, people normally didn't see her again until Monday morning. Hmm. And so that's when the crime occurred, was very early Saturday morning. And that's why it took people so long to discover it, because normally she wasn't around out and about anyway. How was she initially discovered and then what are her injuries? She was discovered late the next day on Saturday afternoon, about six o'clock, because her neighbor saw that her gate had been left ajar, but also her front door had been left ajar, which was highly unusual. She was very security conscious and everyone knew that. Her neighbors knew that. And her neighbor, not wanting to pry, kind of said, well, she'll show up eventually and after some time had passed and another neighbor had passed by and called her name and she didn't answer, she wasn't answering her phone. Finally, the neighbor called the police and that's when they discovered her. What about her injuries? Well, she looked very badly beaten. There was some blood. It looked as if they had taken a cleaning rag and strangled her, but it looked like she was tortured quite a bit. She had a broken jaw and the forensics people said it was from brass knuckles. Wow. She had bruises up and down her arms and legs. She was in a pair of blue jeans and the knees were dirty and bloody as if she had been on her knees when some of this was happening. And it appeared that they had surprised her in her bathroom. Hmm. The rest of the house, there wasn't blood or there wasn't any kind of physical disturbance in the rest of the house, just in the bathroom. And so it looked as if they had surprised her, whoever it was. What do police investigators believe happened that early Saturday morning to her? It depends on who you ask. Yeah. The government created a story literally a couple hours after her body had been discovered, even before they started the investigation. Wow. They were just collecting evidence. From the very beginning, they said it had nothing to do with her work. 
They said the motive was robbery. And then over time, they created a story about her living this double life behind closed doors where she was dating a street criminal and had let him into the house because they had a romantic relationship. And that's how she ended up dead because he went there to rob her and she let him in. They created a whole story about what happened on Friday night that this guy had come in with one of his friends telling his friend, we're going to rob her. She let them in. They were partying, drinking beer, dancing. They got into an argument and then he wanted to steal some money. So he was torturing her to find out where the money was. And then after they got it, he'd strangled her and they left. That was the official story based on the confession of the other guy who was there. But the guy who supposedly did it disappeared right after the crime. He's never been found. And the guy who made the confession later said that he didn't know this woman. He'd never been in her house. And the interesting thing is they never found any physical evidence that either one of these men were inside her house. So the police have immediately come up with a suspect within the first few hours. They have a story that's been concocted. They had the story concocted almost immediately. So they had to go look for this boyfriend in quotes. And what was interesting is when they started the investigation and interviewing people who knew her, everyone was asked if she had a boyfriend and everyone was asked what her personal life was like. And if she drank a lot, they didn't ask anything about her work. They asked about her personal life. So they had to go looking for the boyfriend. She didn't have a boyfriend, I'm assuming. No, she did not. Not in this time. And again, that was part of her protection is she was very guarded about who she knew or hung out with. So they tried, from my point of view, looking at the investigation, they tried many ways to find the boyfriend or to create the boyfriend, I would say. Mm -hmm. So first, they tried to make it one of her close friends, one of the journalists, and he had an alibi that they couldn't do anything about. So they had to throw him out as a suspect. And then they went after some guys in the neighborhood who supposedly this one street drug addict who supposedly told someone he was dating a reporter. Then he had an alibi for that night. And it took them several months, but then they ended up with these two guys. I believe they arrested them six months after her killing. They homed in on these two guys. Are the police really under pressure to find who killed this journalist? Can't they just sort of let it become a cold case? Why do they have to keep trying to find someone? Because that, again, is sort of an institutional tradition in in Mexico. The justice system under the authoritarian government was not about justice. It was about keeping the party in power. And that meant getting rid of any uncomfortable cases. Mm -hmm. The justice system under the ruling party for many years was about going after your enemies and making political problems go away. Mm -hmm. This case was an enormous political problem for them. It was getting international attention because it was so clear that she was the real deal and was likely murdered for her work. So they had to make the noise go away as quickly as possible by saying they had someone, the person confessed, the person was convicted, they put him in jail and throw away the key so that anytime anyone brings up the case, they say it's been resolved. We did our jobs, justice was served. Wow. So six months pass, they find this man. Is that right? They find the accomplice, not the guy who actually did it. And they arrest him and say he confessed. And 
when he gets before the judge for the first time, he tells the judge that he's been tortured into confessing. Oh, wow. And in Mexico, under the recent justice reform at the time, it became law that any testimony extracted by torture was inadmissible in court. That's why he said he was tortured. He was actually convicted, but the conviction was overturned because of the torture. Were they able to prove it? They did the, I don't know if you're familiar with the protocol, a UN protocol that they do. So like the polygraph test. Yes. The test came up negative, but they did it six months after he was captured. Yeah. And so they said, oh, no evidence of torture. But a tribunal there, because torture is very common as an investigation tool in Mexico. And so a tribunal did rule that he had been tortured and threw out the conviction. And the thing that's another very strange element of the case is as soon as he was freed, he disappeared, probably thought he was going to be killed. Yeah. And there was this very concerted effort to go out and find him and find a new judge that would reinstate the sentence. And they did it. They found him. They got the sentence reinstated. And he's now serving 38-year sentence for being an accomplice in the case. And they never found the guy who they say actually murdered Rahina. Yes, they never found him. That person actually did exist, but he disappeared about a week after her murder. Hmm. Of course, the official story is he went on the lam, but the unofficial story is he could have disappeared because he knew something. Writing this book, reporting on the story, were you concerned for your own safety at what level? Did you really feel like you were risking something here? The biggest fear I had was being discovered because I knew if I was discovered, that would compromise my safety. But if I had any indication that I was discovered, I could leave. So I wasn't so concerned about my personal safety in that regard, but in terms of the safety of the people who were talking to me because they couldn't leave. And so if I was discovered and they were discovered, my biggest fear is that something would happen to them. And I'm assuming Rahina's family is apprehensive about coming forward because she's created a whole faux family, right? I mean, she didn't acknowledge who her family was to keep them safe. They haven't spoken at all, and they have not wanted to speak about this at all. Yeah. And actually, this was one detail that really got to me. Her parents didn't go to her funeral. <sighs> Imagine that you could not go to your child's funeral because it would be too dangerous. That's why they didn't go. Her siblings said to her parents, you cannot go. It's too dangerous. They lived outside of the area. They weren't local. And that's why she made up a story because she didn't want anyone to find out exactly where they were. And for that reason, they appointed one sibling to be sort of the representative of the family. Did her family, her, her siblings, were they harassed or have they been generally left alone over the past 10 years? I can't say for sure because they wouldn't talk to me. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But there were reports that, yes, they had been harassed. You know, you had had a conversation with Rahina in the past. You had respected her as a journalist. You were a journalist working in Mexico writing this book. It must have been terrifying to read the details of what happened to her. It just sounds so incredibly vicious. It was very vicious. There was a story of another journalist who's also working on the case where his spouse told me that she had rarely ever seen him cry, but he cried when he read the details of the case. Yeah. 
it was terrible. But also because of the circumstances I was in trying to get the information and how it was a very difficult, dangerous situation, I really kept my emotions out of it. I think mostly because of the work I had to do. I didn't intentionally do that, but I felt like I sort of shut down and went into reporter mode because if I was emotional about it, I could make mistakes. I had to be very careful and calculating about reporting this story. Did you set out to try to figure out who killed her? Was that the purpose of this book? Yes. I really wanted to find out who killed her. That seems impossible to me. (laughs) That just seems so difficult in Mexico or, or really any place. It is. It's sort of like the idealism of a journalist that you start out with this goal, but then you decide, how far can I go with this? For example, I knew I had a story whether I solved the case or not because of how the whole case was handled and whether the government was actually behind her killing or not, they certainly were behind the cover-up. I think that was much easier to demonstrate. And so why? The question is why? And it just shows the injustice to the citizens that this is how they solve cases. This was sort of a crime in itself. Yeah. And that part of the story was easy to document. I waited for three years just because I couldn't, you know, with my job, I didn't really didn't have time. And I thought after three years, the situation would calm down and people would loosen up and people would start talking Mm -hmm. because before they weren't allowed to talk. So if you go to someone for the first time who hasn't spoken before, your chances of getting something is pretty high. Mm -hmm. The problem was what I didn't realize till I got there is to this day, there are people who will not talk about this case. So how far were you able to get? Well, I feel that I found significant information that had never been published before. Mm -hmm. Do you think that it helps point to the killer or is it just deeper research and, and deeper information about just the level of corruption that is happening in Mexico? I think it's both. I think there's a vein that can be investigated that was never investigated and that would take prosecutors and that would take the state to do because I can't subpoena evidence. So I think there's a a new investigative vein that didn't exist before. Mm -hmm. And yes, I mean, part of the book was to show how difficult it is to get at the truth because of the corruption. Do you see an improvement? Well, you have already said it's even less safe now for journalists in Mexico than it was then. Is that right? That's right. And I do feel the reason for the killings I think initially there was a fair amount of these tabloid crime reporters getting in cahoots with the cartels. So that's been 10 years now. In those 10 years or say 12 years since this really started getting bad, 15 more like, in those 15 years, the press has become, in Mexico, has become much more independent. And there are reporters now who really want to get out there and dig and tell the truth because They're younger reporters. They came up in the journalism schools post-democracy. And so they come out prepared and interested and ready to dig, which didn't exist. But these are newly trained journalists. And so there are more. They do tend to be more local and they're hitting local corruption. There's not a study, I would have to say this just sort of anecdotally, that I think more of these cases when journalists are killed are really about them uncovering something uncomfortable. Well, I read the book and I read the review and I'm struck by very rarely in the New York Times do they sort of call out a writer for her quality in this way. The person who reviewed your book says she is a fine and honest writer 
a dogged reporter, and her story paints a dystopian portrait of our southern neighbor where decades of rampant impunity have led to horrific abuses of power. More than 100,000 people have disappeared in Mexico since such records have been kept, most of them since the drug wars began in 2006. That's something to be very proud of. I know you know that. Thank you. And also the writer is a very spectacular writer himself, Mark Bowden. So yes, that was really something to read that. Are you ever willing to go down this road again? This would terrify me. I have two young kids. This would be so scary to do. I think you do have to consider those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. In a different period of my life, no, I wouldn't do this. (laughs) (laughs) So you do have to consider that. You know, I had my own security protocol. I think what really drove me in this case was curiosity. Hmm. And the whole environment that I was in, I had to take into account, but almost as a secondary, because I was just so curious. I really wanted to find out what happened. And sometimes in Mexico and other places, you do have to come to a point where you say, this is just too dangerous. Yeah. And a lot of journalists in Mexico make those decisions now and say, you know, we're not going to go down this road because it's just too dangerous. I don't know. I just was in a situation where I had my system down. There were a couple indications that I was being watched, which I describe in the book. But for the most part, I felt very anonymous. And as long as I felt anonymous, I just kept going. Even as a white journalist in Mexico, anonymous? Well, people could pretty much can see I was probably American. Mm -hmm. Although when I first went to Mexico, people thought I was European, which is actually better than being American. So they would ask if I was French or Italian. I can also pass for Northern Mexican. But as soon as I started speaking, of course, they knew it wasn't my native language. But Jalapa is a university town. With a university town, there are a lot of foreigners there. There are a lot of, you know, professors there investigating various things for theses, things like that. So I wasn't completely, you know, I didn't stick out like a sore thumb. And it was also a big tourist attraction until the Arca Wars broke out. There are a lot of tourists there. So I just wasn't that unusual on the scene. What do you think is Rahina Martinez's legacy in Mexico as a journalist? Her murder had a huge impact on the whole profession across the country. And so people have not forgotten. It was very much a watershed, a turning point, because the fact that a journalist working for a national publication with her profile was killed was a signal to any national journalist anywhere that they could be a target. So I think it changed very much the sensibility for journalists in Mexico. But I think it also, well, there's been a lot of mythology, obviously, that's grown up around the case since then. But I think it is kind of a beacon. It's something that people keep in mind, not only for the terrible thing that happened, but for the kind of journalist she was. She's very known and admired posthumously for the kind of work she did and what she stood for. And everybody knows that. And she has actually been recognized in many ways, posthumously, including winning a George Polk Award and a Maria Moore's Cabot Award. Mm. So she's definitely a beacon in that way, I think. Her example inspires a lot of younger journalists. What a terrible loss. It is. It's very sad. The thing that's interesting every time I talk about this is she was so private. First of all, she didn't care anything about awards, and she probably would hate that she's had this much attention. 
But I think in telling the story, it's important to let people know what she did and what she stood for, because that was really important. And I I think it's a really important story. And I think it resonates with a lot of people. If you love historical true crime stories, check out the audio versions of my books, The Ghost Club, All That Is Wicked, and American Sherlock. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our senior producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our associate producer is Alex Chi. This episode was mixed by John Bradley. Curtis Heath is our composer. Artwork by Nick Toga. Executive produced by Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.